0: Welcome to the show to be named later where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. Uh, yeah, we're upload uploading to YouTube as soon as possible. You're going to try to get it, uh, every Wednesday now over on the other side of the screen, as you can see is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel?
1: I'm doing all right, Chris. Another, another fun week of research. We went hot wild this week. We got Paul Molitor, a hall of famer. We got the 2005 world series champion Chicago white Sox today. It's going to be a good one. And I'm excited.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's he, yeah. You know, we'll preview these guys. Paul Molitor. I, you know, I I did some research. I'm excited about this one, but the 05 white Sox. I didn't realize how dominant they actually were.
1: They were a very interesting team. Not like, not like many others. I'll say that.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Um, there's no real mlb news i think thing things are cuz we are an mlb news kind of analysis pod, podcast
1: podcast I, mean, yeah. I mean i guess the, there's the idea manfred recently put out that there that he is anticipating games to be played this year which i i mean i hope he does like i hope they play games but yeah you can't I mean, be sure right now
0: numbers numbers are getting better uh the models are yep looking better so I guess it I guess it's more optimistic and I guess we'll have
1: to see I mean there's nothing for sure because obviously social distancing is doing its job but you got to be careful about when you want to end that
0: yeah yeah exactly and also playoffs will be happening during the fall when another possible um, another possible outbreak could happen I guess hopefully I'm no scientist but that's yeah, what the uh, that's what the experts say I guess Mm -hmm. so so uh because there's no baseball going on we would usually be talking about um what teams are doing really
1: well what players are having good seasons how many times the Astros have been hit already yeah Mike Trout has already wrapped up his fourth MVP yeah uh the Mariners look really good but we all know it they'll fade
0: yeah uh I don't know who has who who like just starts out the Mets are already injured (laughs) yeah the Mets are already injured uh I, I, have nothing, I have
1: nothing. Can't get any run support.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. De, Degrom is zero and two with a one five ERA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, so yeah. Instead, we have decided to go uh, go history based,
1: mm-hmm. a lesson
0: for ourselves and uh, and for the listeners, and also kind of modernize uh, how players are are looked at historically. Yes. yes. So so yeah. Uh, I have picked 30 baseball players, uh, assign them a number one through 30. Daniel picks a number, uh, for, and whatever player is assigned to that number we're going to talk about for the next episode. Same thing. Uh, I pick a number that, uh, to a team that Daniel has assigned mm-hmm. a number. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll pick a random number. And whatever team that is, we talk about that team for the second half of the episode. So this week, he picked uh, the number that was assigned to Paul Molitor, and I picked the team, the number that was assigned to the 2005 Chicago White Sox.
1: That's right. That's
0: right. Very exciting stuff, and we're going to get right into it, because there's really not much.
1: You know, to- what I like about this show is it's a num- it's a player and a team that both kind of fly under the radar. Uh times
0: yeah because yeah kind of fly under the radar you know my my list has some some stars but i i didn't want to pick anyone that like they've made like movies on (laughs) or or anything and like you uh you picked the 1990 reds who were definitely overlooked uh instead of like you know the big red machine
1: exactly
0: you know teams that were were kind of overlooked and players that, uh, you know, were, were also kind of overlooked. I think Joe Morgan was a good example of that last week. Exactly. Make sure you listen to that one. And Paul Molitor, there's one guy I can compare.
1: Bruce has been waiting all week for this. he yeah. waiting long. He's been waiting for me to pick his number since yep. we started doing this. He started – he was talking – you were talking to me about at school uh, before quarantine started about, like, Paul Molitor, there's this guy that – He's very similar to, but he doesn't get enough recognition compared yeah. to how much the other guy gets, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. Chris, yeah. I know you can at the bit
0: for that. So yeah, so the episode we're gonna start with Paul Molitor. Paul Molitor uh, grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Definitely breaking our Texas, California, Florida. Yeah.
1: And what a perfect way to break it! It's not like you know just Arizona or like yeah Georgia. It's, it's, we're going way north. We're going off the grid. Yeah.
0: You guys, so where it snows you know,
1: hundreds of inches a year.
0: Yeah. If you're a professional athlete coming out of Minnesota, odds are you're, you're playing in the NHL.
1: Exactly. MLB
0: is, MLB is
1: crazy. So, That's yeah. Not happening.
0: Good, good on Paul Maul,
1: sure it's probably not happening. That skill. I mean, he's a guy who was taking gym grounders every, every January. For,
0: yeah, for sure. And probably,
1: probably
0: longer than, longer than we did in uh or maybe maybe longer than i did you're you're a little more north but uh definitely definitely longer than uh connecticut upstate new york pro kind of the same roughly the same roughly the same yeah um
1: there'd be times where we'd be doing it now in on april 21st
0: yeah it's uh it's rough rough up there so molitor he grew up in saint paul minnesota uh group a, a big twins fan and it is funny because like uh they moved to minnesota when he was uh four or five years old so like he's basically og twins fan yeah he is if you're, if you're looking at it um mm-hmm. and he uh, he wore number four in the major leagues partially because of a uh, twins outfielder bob allison who uh, i didn't know about but actually had a pretty pretty good career um, yeah, I just I just remember he had a career 8.29 OPS and he, he just didn't have the longevity and that's also considering a guy a guy who uh, didn't play in the most offensive era and uh, but yeah he really liked he really liked Bob Allison and uh, you know there's not there's not a crazy amount to to Paul Molitor growing up but in high school he did miss uh, most of his senior year with with Mono which yeah. uh probably brought him down in in whatever draft he was going to be uh drafted out of but uh but a funny anecdote that uh that a high school that a high school uh coach had of him was that in a state's game he got a take sign on a 30 on a 30 count and he swung at a ball at his face but it ended up going over the fence for a grand slam, which is uh, pretty wild. They were down two to one. Yeah. And he hits one at his face for a a grand slam.
1: That kind of reminds me of a time, a little personal story here. When I was in ninth grade, um, I came up, I think there was a guy on first and the first pitch of the at-bat, oh, you know what? There's a guy on first because the pitcher had just walked the person before me on four pitches. And my coach gave me the take sign first pitch. And I actually like, forgot the signs and didn't see it. And I ended up hitting a single in the left field and I come around and score. And later my teammate goes to me, he goes, Dan, you know, you know, the take sign, right? I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah I think so. Why he goes, yeah, he gave it to you that pitch and you, you swung. I was like, Oh no. So the next, so the next day uh, he brings it up to me and he kind of, he kind of yelled at me a little bit for it. But the, the funny part about that story is he still brings it up to this day. Like I, I was in a class with him last year, which would be, which would have been my senior year of high school three years later. And he brought that up. He goes, Daniel. Remember that time you missed the take sign? <laughs> that's so, that's uh, pretty
0: crazy. The difference
1: just, here being, Paul Molitor is much better than I am. Of course, he ended up in the Hall of Fame, and I'm here.
0: Yeah, yeah. He you're talking about him. Also, in that situation, he hit a home run. You you had a ball that situation.
1: was at his face. My my yeah. pitch was right down the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, Paul Paul Molitor definitely definitely maximized yeah. that situation. Uh, but he only ended up getting drafted in the 28th round out of high school uh, by the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, the signing bonus was $4,000. He held out for an $8,000 signing bonus. Good uh, Car- Cardinals weren't going to give that to him uh, out of the 28th round. So he just he took a scholarship from uh, Unif- University of Minnesota to play for the Gophers.
1: Golden Gophers
0: golden gophers and uh had a very good career with the gophers hit 375 as a freshman he missed all big 10 by one vote uh then the next year he stepped it up even more uh hit 406 shout out to ted williams Mm -hmm. uh and uh he finished second in the big 10 in homers um and was also named first team all american uh as a sophomore and uh Junior year, he took a bit of a step back, but was still very good, made first team all Big Ten. Um, the team also made the College World Series, which, if you're unaware, that's the top eight college teams in the country, which is hard to do when there's 500 uh, Division One college teams.
1: Especially if you're in Minnesota.
0: Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, you don't you see a lot at, of that. You see – You're looking
1: at the SEC. You're looking at – I mean, maybe not in that time, but you're looking at Vanderbilt. You're looking yeah. at LSU. You're looking at Miami.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the South definitely has the advantage there. But the Gophers, possibly because of Paul Molitor, were able to get to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. So mm-hmm. that season, along with his freshman and sophomore year, um, gets him drafted by the Brewers, third overall in the draft. Uh, Daniel, do you want to? I don't know if you know. Do you want to guess who was drafted number one overall in that
1: 1977 draft? 77? Yeah. Um, it's Is it another Hall of Famer?
0: It is another Hall of Famer.
1: Ooh. Was it Joe Morgan?
0: No, no. No?
1: 77. Oh, yeah, duh. You see <laughs> he, he was a two-time MVP by that point. Um, uh, what position?
0: Uh, he was an outfielder.
1: Okay. Uh, in, what was it? 70?
0: 70... 77.
1: I got no, I got nothing.
0: Hall of Famer Harold Baines. <laughs>
1: oh, come on, Chris. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Get out of here. Get out. Of, no, you know, in 500, I oh. would never have guessed that.
0: So I think that team, <laughs> I think that team made the right choice. I mean, I mean, I guess they missed on another Hall of Famer, but they they mm, still enjoyed Hall of Famer. Did
1: they miss a Hall of Famer, Chris? <laughs> I don't know if they did. Oh my god.
0: So yeah, Paul Molitor he gets drafted third overall, two spots behind Harold Baines. Um he receives an eighty thousand dollar signing bonus, which is uh I mean even in nineteen better than what
1: was offered from the Cardinals.
0: Yeah, ten uh yeah, twenty times more. Than, mm-hmm. than the offer by the Cardinals. And Molitor uh, did not have to – did not take long to adjust to professional baseball. He won the Midwest League MVP, like, in it was his only year, and he joined mid-year. <laughs> so he won mid Midwest League MVP playing about two-thirds of that season, uh, which is pretty insane. Yeah. sure. So that leads him to being – Called up, uh, I don't know if he was in the opening day lineup, but he made his MLB debut on April 7th, 1978. Uh, and he, uh, he, yeah, he did make the opening day roster. He made the opening day roster because Robin Yount was injured. Um, he, almost,
1: almost a Wally Pip, if you will. Yeah, almost a Wally Pip being Robin Yount
0: stayed. Yeah, Robin Yount stayed and and he hit got 3,000 hits. Yeah, Wally Pipp is is just a uh, just just in just a name in a in a in folklore in baseball folklore. Right. So Molitor, he started out as a second baseman because uh, Yount was was the main shortstop, so he wasn't going to take Yount's spot. Um, he finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting, uh, had a 6.73 OPS, but also 30 stolen bases. So you know that can that can earn you the Rookie of the Year running mm-hmm. up runner-up, especially when you're playing a full season. Uh, In 1979, he ramps it up, bats 322 with an 842 OPS to go along with 33 stolen bases. Uh, He also got MVP votes, finished 20th in in MVP voting. And then in 1980, um, very interesting year for for Paul Molitor, both on the field and off the field because uh, he was hitting – uh, 358 with a 923 OPS uh, until he pulled a muscle in his rib cage on June 6th. Um, he made the All Star uh, he made the All Star squad, but he, he could not play in it. And over that time recovering from injury, he actually developed uh, a cocaine habit because you know it's, it's 1980, everyone's doing it. And uh, then he he kind of gets anxious comes back from injury probably too early and and for the rest of the season he ends up hitting 265 with a 723 ops uh and that that brought his numbers down those were also in in 64 games and uh his his coke his coke habit didn't didn't stop went into the offseason but uh after uh after a bad episode where he didn't go to his parents house for christmas because uh because he was passed out from partying the night before because of that episode, uh, pretty much got, got off of it. His, uh, his wife threatened to leave him because of the incident. And, uh, he, uh, he got off of it. Uh, religion helped him out. So uh, some, uh, definitely a battle he he had to get over, uh, very quickly, pretty impressive how quickly he got off of it and no word of him not getting back on it. And for, a guy who developed a habit in in his early 20s, I I bet that's probably tough for him to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not something you ever want to get involved with, especially, you know, something to look back on, and obviously, it's a, it's a great thing that he was able to get over it, Um, and he, I mean, for a, for a bad situation like that, he handled it perfectly, you know, he, he found a way to get over it, he was able to get over it, and you know, hey, that happened, and it didn't affect his life on the field going forward.
0: Yeah, whatever he – yeah, he found a a way to get off of it and kept with it, and he's fine now. Uh, So, you know, that leads him into the rest of his career, and it it didn't get better immediately for him uh, on the field. In in 1981, uh, he was limited to 64 games – Because of injury and also the players' strike, I think the the team that played the most games is probably played like 115 games, maybe. Um, And uh, they made the Brewers made the playoffs uh, back when, and they were also an American League team at the time. Keep in mind, Uh, and they lost to the Yankees in the ALDS in five games. There, there was a division series because uh, was this? Yeah, because. uh, the season was so short, they they added more playoff teams. Okay. It's, it's a weird thing. Yeah, I would read about it. It's, it's hard time, to explain.
1: Was what was like, that? In a one That must have been a one-year thing for that period of time because they switched right back to uh, just a championship series right after that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah,
0: for, for 12 more years. Yep. So, uh, 1981, that was also his only season playing outfield. Uh, played center field for – most of the season, which I guess definitely shows his athleticism. I mean, you're stealing 30 bags a year. You can play outfield and you can hit the ball very well. Uh, And then he goes to third base from 1982 uh, to 1986 for the most part. And uh, he kind of split time between DH and third base between 88 and 92 as well. And then uh, in 82, has a very good year, probably the best year of his career. He hit three Oh two with an 816 OPS to go along with 41 stolen bases. Uh, also led the MLB and runs scored at 136 and he finished 12th in the MVP voting, which was uh, the highest, highest mark of his career. Um, also uh, that's kind of when we were introduced to, I guess, I guess I could call him poly playoffs. Uh, yeah. Paulie postseason. The guy, guy raked in the postseason. Uh, he hit 316 with a 1065 OPS, with two home runs and five RBI, and a five-game American League Championship Series victory against the Angels. And uh, Fred Fred Lynn, who was on the Angels, actually won that ALCS MVP. Which, looking at the numbers, he probably deserved it because he was 11 for. He was eleven for eighteen with uh, a yeah. with a fifteen thirty nine OPS that series. So you know, I guess I guess the guy from the losing team kind of deserved it's it. That's better
1: but, than most people's SAT scores.
0: Yeah, better than, better than that's a good point. Better than most. Definitely better than my SAT score. Oh, definitely mine for sure.
1: It runs laps around mine. Uh, sure. I mean, MVP on a losing team. Yeah, that's impressive.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely, you know when you think of like weird baseball that's mm-hmm. definitely one to to put in the to put in the log for sure and uh yeah molitor he uh he probably would have won ALCS MVP if it weren't for for the team for the guy on the uh on the losing team and that leads us to the world series because you know they won uh because they won the American League Championship Series,
1: They're the first and to this point only Brewers uh, World Series appearance in their history.
0: Yeah. Um, so Paul Molitor, he was four for five to uh, to start the game. He was four for five to start the game, and uh, the record for most hits in a World Series game was five and we're going to see if Paul Molitor breaks this record As usual
2: for game one of the World series
0: So he does break the record, He does break the record. Uh, five for six in game one of the world series uh, as a whole in that series, he ended up hitting three fifty-five. all of his hits were singles, um, which, uh, you know, didn't, didn't impact his OPS very well. Uh, and the Brewers ended up losing that series in seven games uh, to the Cardinals.
1: Gotta love Bob Euchre on that call, by the way.
0: Yeah, Bob, young, a young Bob Euchre for sure. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, started.
0: so that good performance in 1982 leads to him getting a five year, $5.1 million deal. Uh, trust me, it was a lot back then. Uh, definitely not, definitely not the same as, as $5.1 million now. And, uh, in that 1983 season kind of took a a step down 743 OPS uh, 41 stolen bases still still chugging along with the, with the stolen bases. And then in 1984, uh, he actually has to get Tommy John surgery. He was limited to
1: a rare position player getting getting it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A, uh, a Didi Gregorius type Mm
1: -hmm. Tommy
0: John surgery. Uh, shut him down for basically the entire season. He only played 13 games. Uh then in 1985, comes back, um pretty uh pretty good year. 764 OPS, 21 stolen bases, uh and then in 86 has almost an identical year, except he played less games, 765 OPS, 20 stolen bases. Uh and uh because because of a torn hamstring in, in 1986. He was limited to only 105 games that year. So, you know, you're looking at Paul Molitor. He's, he's a third pick overall. You know, he's a – at the time, he was a pretty good player. Uh, up to 1986, which was his age 29 season, he had tw- uh, 1,203 hits. He had a 291 average, a 766 OPS, a 29.3 baseball reference war, Uh, and a 27.3 fan graphs war. So he's having a pretty good career, but he's not really by any means on a Hall of Fame trajectory yet. Yet. So Daniel's going to talk about Mm kind of when he turned things around. So
1: 1987 was the year that he became uh, on that Hall of Fame trajectory that we were so longing. Uh, In 1987, 353, 438, 566, 1003 with uh, 45 stolen bases. Uh, unfortunately, he had injuries that season, which limited him to just 118 games. I uh, made him a DH for most of the season. He led the and were they in the NL at this time?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say he led the AL in doubles and uh, and runs scored. He finished third in the AL in uh, Baseball Reference War and F War Fangraphs War, and he finished fifth in the MVP voting. So. To that point, his best season in 1987, uh, despite the injuries. Also, uh, a 39-game hit streak from July 16th, uh, which is the first game after a 19-day absence, by the way, until August 25th. And during that time, he slashed 415, 495. He He had almost a 500 OBP. He got on base just about half the time. 683, 1178 during the streak, along with 15 stolen bases. The streak ended with the Brewers walking him off, walking it off with him on deck, which is uh pretty funny. Maybe some hard feelings in the dugout after that game, but I don't know. Yeah,
0: kind kind of a bitter, bittersweet moment there. But in all fairness, it was an extra inning, so I, I guess his his time he his kind of passed. One and, thing well, I, I, don't
1: think he, I don't think he cared that much anyway. The streak was the seventh longest at all time. So yeah, then that was that was the big year for him uh, from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety two. He signed a two two-year $2.8 million deal uh, with the Brewers in 88. He hit 312 with an 836 OPS and 41 stolen bases in 88, and he finished eighth in the MVP voting that season. Uh, From 89 to 92, his average season was 314 average with an 845 OPS, as well as 24 stolen bases and 144 games. What you're seeing here is consistency. You know, he's not necessarily lighting up uh, all the stats and the charts and the graphs and all that. But he's doing what he should be doing. And, you know, a 314 average, you know, I know average isn't uh, heavily influenced as much as it was back then, but a 314 average is seen as a Hall of Famer back then. And an 845 yes. OPS is nothing to scoff at either, mm-hmm. especially from a shortstop in that era. Uh, he also had a series of injuries that held him to 103 games back in 1990, and he signed a three year, $9.1 million deal in 1990. He became a first baseman slash DH. Ninety-one had to adjust a little bit. He also led the league in hits and triples in ninety-one, and he finished MVP. And then he finished eleventh in the MVP voting that season. Tenth uh, in nineteen ninety-two. Also, uh, during that time period, uh, him, Robin Yount, and Jim Gantter set a record for the longest tenure by three teammates on one team. They played together for fifteen years on the Brewers, and nobody has since uh, beaten that.
0: Yeah, eat that core four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh yeah, and Ganter Ganter and mal uh not Moller, Ganter and Yount were kind of upset when uh when apparently the brewers could not afford to pay uh Paul Molliter anymore. Uh he had I guess priced out uh priced out the brewers and he went on the free agent market, uh which he was probably one of the probably one of the first bigger free agents maybe not i think free agencies picked up in like the 70s but he was definitely like an early era free agent it's not as it wasn't as common as it is now and uh so and also yount was pretty upset he ended up retiring after the 93 season which he played one season after Moladar left and then he left the league so it might have been a factor might have not been to be fair so, Molitor goes to the defending World Series champion, Toronto Blue Jays, for three years and $13 million. Uh, gets that check, gets on a winning team. I mean, he, he has to be extremely happy. He goes on to have probably the, the best season of his career. Uh, he hits 332, has a 402 on base percentage, 509 slugging for a 911 OPS. To go along with uh, 22 stolen bases in what I believe it was his age 36 season, to go with that, 22 stolen bases as a 36-year-old is Mm -hmm. pretty wild, also considering that he's slugging pretty well. He he also had 22 homers. uh, Led the MLB in hits, and with runners in scoring position, he was especially good. hit 384 with runners in scoring position and you know all stuff like that that results y- you in finishing second in the mvp voting Uh big big time year for paul molitor
1: by the way he, that 22 home runs you mentioned also a career high for him at age 36
0: yeah yeah so definitely uh an interesting career for for molitor mm-hmm. uh didn't 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 go the normal trend like last Last mm-hmm. week we talked about Joe Morgan. He kind of had that ideal uh, trend. Paul Molitor kind of goes against that for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then uh, Paulie playoffs emerges, probably a reason why he went to the Blue Jays because he knows he's best. He knows it's best. He's he knows he's best when it matters most. Uh, and it started right away. ALCS Game One against the White Sox. Uh, he goes four for five. Uh, he hits the go-ahead single and a late-inning two-run home run, um, which basically sealed the victory. They won 7-3 to three that game. Uh, and in the entire a- ALCS, he hit 391 with an 1177 OPS to go along with 5 RBI. Spectacular performance from Paul Mulder. It can't get better any better than that, right? You're wrong. You're wrong if you're at home thinking it can't be- – you're wrong if you're at home, if you think it can't get bet any better than that. Uh, that's a, that's a hard, hard phrase to say, but Paulie playoffs, he gets back into it. Game three, he's three for four with a walk, a home run, and three RBI. And I actually watched the full game four on YouTube, and uh, the what I think it it might have been the booth broadcasters or the sideline guy like he said he said uh because there was rain at veteran veteran stadium uh Mm -hmm. before the game and it, it delayed the game by about an hour about an hour and uh he said rain rain went away what we'll remember is this man's day and the camera was on paul molitor just a little uh broadcast anecdote for you there then in game four in a legendary 15 to 14 game which I was unaware of until this week in a legendary 15 to 14 game. He does his part, uh, goes two for four with a walk, also two RBI to go with that. Um, and then, uh, the blue Jays are up three to one after that game. Uh, they end up getting shut down by a should be hall of famer, Kurt Schilling Yeah. Uh, in game five, who, uh, <laughs> I did a rant on, uh,
1: Hey, he'll last, have his day. He'll have his semester. day. He'll have his day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's not a Kurt Schilling thing. So, uh, so it's three-two, Blue Jays up in the series, heading to Toronto, and uh, you know, you know that Paul Mol- that there's pressure on the Blue Jays, pressure on Paul Molitor to seal this victory. You don't want to go to a game seven. Paul Molitor knows that, uh, and I'm going to show you what Paul Molitor did to make sure that this did not go seven. Oh, wait, that's not it.
1: That's definitely not what you want. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're spoiling, you're spoiling the whole show right here.
0: Spoiler alert. That's a little inside info for all of yeah. y'all.
1: That's a 10-page uh, document right there. Um, all right.
0: It is tough with – it is tough tough out here. And there we are. Here we go. We're going to unmute this. We're going to give you the inside look of what Paul Molitor was able to do for the Blue Jays in game six of the 1993 World Series.
2: Center well on the run. Looking up he He'll come to score the reducing the likelihood
1: of a game seven somewhat. With a tremendous blast into
2: the second
0: deck in left. That's hit number two for Paul Molitor. Now we're in the bottom of the ninth. They're down 1. Ricky Henderson is on first base.
2: This is last appearance game 4. Prime in a center fielding faster him. Third one I from Molitor. Henderson stops at second. Paul Molitor has been a hitting
0: machine. So Paul Molitor keeps the line moving in that last at bat.
1: Um, Actually, uh, I have a story about that game. Go
0: right ahead, man.
1: Uh, I cannot confirm that this is true or not, but it is something that I've been told on multiple occasions. Uh, one of my friends, his dad, uh, went to college in Buffalo and spent some time in Toronto and was supposedly, can't confirm that this is true, actually snuck into that game. There was no security. He walked right in and saw the, that that whole thing unfold in the ninth inning.
0: What inning was that when he snuck in?
1: I don't know. But uh, been... once again, I don't. I don't know if this is actually true. I've been told by him and my friend that uh, this happened. I wasn't there, obviously. I wasn't born yet. But uh, supposedly, maybe that happened. I don't know.
0: Multiple sources are saying that this is true. But
1: well, one of those sources was not alive back then.
0: Correct. Correct. But Paul Molitor, his. I hope. I hope whoever snuck in was able to see. Paul Molitor's greatness because his line for that day was uh three for five with a home run and two RBI um, mm-hmm. just set the tone for the game. And it, like that, that last hit wasn't, didn't end up as important, but in the context of the situation, they were down by one. He moved Henderson into scoring position. Um, you know, the hit ended up being useless because Joe Carter would have drove him in anyway. But at the time, you're moving a guy into scoring position when you're down by one in in the world series. So, you know, all three hits were extremely important. And uh, in the series, he ends up winning world series MVP. Everyone remembers Joe Carter, but
1: I was just like, contrary to popular belief, Paul Molitor did in fact win uh, MVP of that series.
0: Yeah. And you know why? And it was undeniable, undeniable that Paul Molitor deserved to win that MVP he was 12 for 24, uh, for those keeping track. That's a 500 batting average. He had a 571 on base, a 1571 OPS, two home runs, and eight RBI to go along with 10 runs scored. 10 runs scored in six games. Uh, crazy, crazy stuff.
1: It's a, it's a great great trivia moment right there.
0: Yeah. That's like... It's, it's, we get
1: asked that question. Who won MVP of the 1993 World Series, the one with the Blue Jays against the Phillies with the walk-off home run? Oh, that was Joe Carter, right? No, it was actually Paul Molitor.
0: It was Paul. It was Paulie Playoffs.
1: Playoffs. That's like the uh, that's at like the World Series version of the 2008 Home Run Derby, where Justin yeah. Morris is the guy that won it, but everybody remembers Josh Hamilton.
0: Yeah, you could even say, like, 2019 Home Run yeah, Derby. Yeah,
1: Gladdy Jr.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we... I give him that name Paulie playoffs.
1: He deserves because,
0: because his career in the postseason, unfortunately, that was the last time we got to see uh, Paul Molitor in the playoffs. His career in the postseason in 132 plate appearances, 29 games, he hit 368 with a 435 on-base percentage, 615 slugging percentage and a 1050 OPS. An incredible incredible play, playoff performances from Paul Molitor. Um he ends up, you know, he he has a 3-year deal with the Blue Jays. Can they three-peat? They definitely can't three-peat. I think they ended up going under 500 in the strike-shortened 1994. So even if they were good, they couldn't have repeated in 94. Uh but in that season it was no fault of Paul Molitor that that they uh, did poorly in 1994. He hit 341 with a 927 OPS and 20 stolen bases in a, uh, in 115 games, uh, led, the, led the league in games played, which only time that happened in his career. And then uh, in 95, uh, he has a 772 OPS, definitely takes a step back, uh, 12 stolen bases. And, you, you know, you also have to consider that was his age, 38 season, so probably probably slowing down a bit.
1: So after that, he's his contract with the Blue Jays does eventually expire. So, where do you go? You go to your hometown, of course. He signs a deal with the Twins to finish off his career. And uh, in 1996, uh, his age, I believe, 39 season. Is that correct? His age 39 season. Yeah. He hit 341 with an 858 OPS and 18 stolen bases. Finishes 13th in the MVP, uh, which is absolutely insane from a 39 year old who isn't exactly known for power, especially. Normally, if you think great age 39 seasons offensively, you're kind of thinking more that route. Uh, That's not the case for him. And also that season, he gets his 3,000th hit. Uh, September 16th, 1996, he becomes, I believe, the
0: 20th member of the 3,000 hit club? 21st.
1: 21st. Ah, They will
0: say it in the broadcast, which is what we are about to show you. That's right. Uh, there's pretty much an ad for every YouTube video I pull up. I, I never...
1: Well, that's because they're all from MLB. That's why it's a verified source.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's a good point there. Yep. So, yeah, Paul Molitor. Um, and this is actually a pretty unique way to get your 3,000th uh, 3, 3, hit. And here it is. Myers and Nunley chase it.
2: Myers... Three thousand hit, and he's chugging for third. And Look he's he got a third at age thirty nine. Home monitor becomes the twenty first member of baseball's three thousand hit. Club.
0: So there it is. Three thousand hits for Paul Molitor.
1: It was A little both. anecdote, by the way. Um, exactly three years earlier, September sixteenth, nineteen ninety-three, was the day that Dave Winfield, another Minnesota native, got his three thousandth hit for the Twins. that, same day. that is the same day and same team and same hometown. He was also from St. Paul.
0: That's wild. That's mm-hmm. the 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 simulators that run the universe. They yeah. were.
1: They, were really, they really uh, marked it down on that one. They did a great job there. For sure. Uh, so he finished his career at age 41. Uh, his age 41 season, he hit 281 with a 718 OPS. Not Obviously, I mean, OPS wasn't a factor back then, but 281 is nothing to complain about at age 41. And even 718, not terrible. So for his career, 10th all-time in hits with 3,319, 6th all-time since the live ball era, 14th all-time in doubles, and also from 87 to 96, he led MLB in hits and doubles. He's the only player, out of the 19,000 men that have stepped on an MLB baseball field, he is the only one to have a 300 average, 3,000 hits, 500 stolen bases, and 200-plus homers.
0: Pretty pretty wild stuff from Moller. From I wasn't expecting to find any stats where he was the only guy to have anything. Oh, there but, it is. I mean, yeah, and I know, I know there's four stats there, but it's still very, very significant.
1: Mm-hmm. All, yeah, I mean, all of them have been done by plenty of people.
0: Yeah, for sure. But he's he's the only one to string all of them together, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And so, Paul Molitor, I've been prefacing this
1: since this is, the big, this is Chris's big moment
0: since last week. So I, I remember. So we've we've had this radio show. Um, it, it started on radio uh back in um so so we were talking about hall of fame stuff obviously derek jeter deservingly so uh gets inducted into the hall of fame uh at in yeah he gets inducted first ballot uh for the 2020 inductions and uh you know we were talking about whether he was going to be unanimous or not and comparatively speaking we said like absolutely not uh and you know we were definitely frustrated at people who were saying he should have been unanimous you know i i have a weird view of it uh on like you know i feel like i feel like anyone who i think should be a hall of famer should be unanimous because i believe everyone should agree with me but that's just like it's not how it, no, in, how it works in it's not how it works in baseball but so yeah if you think if you're thinking Jeter should be one of two guys the top two in Hall of Fame vote, I think I think you're crazy because we and you definitely mentioned someone like if he get if he had this career on say the Royals or maybe even like the, the Brewers Blue Jays and twins. <laughs> the Brewers, Blue Jays, and Twins, he probably doesn't get this recognition. And Paul Molliter is the ultimate example of that. Paul, Paul Mal- Molliter is-
1: Quite This is not an insult to either player, but Paul Molitor is Derek Jeter in a small market.
0: Yes. So what was that? So you look at statistical comparison, and I believe, I believe Paul Molitor actually had a better career than Derek Jeter. But I would, I would, it would be fair to say that they were pretty much dead even, uh, career-wise. So Jeter has the edge in hits. He has three thousand four hundred sixty-five hits compared to Molitor's. Uh, 3,319. Uh, Jeter also has the advantage in batting average, a 310 batting average compared to Molitor's 306. Uh, also the advantage in on-base percentage at 377. Molitor had a 369 on-base. But Molitor had the edge in slugging, uh, 448 compared to 440. And their OPS, this is why I pointed it out, their mm-hmm. OPS was identical at 817.
1: All of them 817.
0: Eight seventeen exactly, but also when I looked deeper into it, I realized, oh, Molitor was definitely in a less offensive era than Derek Jeter was. So comparatively, mm-hmm. Paul Molitor must have been better because I I looked it up and there's no uh, pinpoint uh, evidence for it, but I just took the I just took the average OPS for every year between seventy eight and seventy eight. Uh, 78 and 98, and I took the average uh, OPS from 95 to 2014 uh, and averaged that out. So the the average AL, the American League average for OPS between 78 and 98 was 738. That's when Molitor played. 738, and the American League average OPS from 95 to 2014, which is when Jeter played, the average American League OPS from that time frame was 759. Jeter's, Jeter's era had uh, 21 points higher in OPS uh, compared to Molitor's era. So that leads to Molitor having a better OPS plus, which is relative to, you know, the rest of the league. So Molitor had a 122 OPS plus. Jeter had a 115 OPS plus. And then if you want to use the Fangraphs model, Molitor had a 122 weighted runs created plus. Jeter had a 119 weighted runs created plus. You also have to consider what these guys did on the bases. Jeter was a pretty good base runner, but definitely not on Paul Molitor's level. Molitor had 504 stolen bases and Jeter had 358. Molitor almost had 150 more stolen bases than Derek Jeter. And then, of course, you look at, uh, wins above replacement, Molitor was better on the baseball reference scale, and uh, Jeter actually had the edge on Fangraphs, which is weird because, I mean, when you look at the the hard data, I don't really see where Jeter has an edge because even Fangraphs' uh, defensive data doesn't really like Jeter. Uh, they hate
1: Jeter. Yeah,
0: they don't like Jeter.
1: Negative 100-something uh, defensive runs saved.
0: Yeah, fan, both FanGraphs and Baseball Reference don't like Jeter's defense, so I don't know how Jeter had the higher wins above replacement. But I guess I guess you could say it's even from that standpoint. But I'm making the argument that Paul Molitor had a better career than uh, Derek Jeter, and Paul Molitor got 85.2 percent of the vote first ballot in uh, 2004, and no one complained about it. No one said he should. No one have been... said. Yeah, no one. No one said he should have been unanimous or should have had 90% of the vote. No one was complaining. Oh, and one thing I forgot. Paul Molitor was a better playoff performer, too. That's what I was
1: just going to mention. I was going to say, the Jeter people will talk to you about the five rings and the playoffs and, the, and, you know, the championships. Paul Molitor did everything he could to get every championship possible.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Jeter... You
1: can't put any any not having five rings on Paul Molitor. That's the, t- that's the fact that Jeter played on a – crazy talented team with the best closer of all time with you know, some great starting pitching one of the Andy Pettit one of the best postseason performers of all time and no disrespect to Jeter he had his postseason moments and he was very good too but comparatively speaking Paul milder should be looked at statistically on the same platform that Derek Jeters looked at the only yeah, difference I'm, is the markets they played in
0: i'm actually i should edit this part out because i'm going to uh, i'm going to type it i'm going to put in Derek Jeter i want to see how many uh, playoff series Derek Jeter had because Derek Jeter never had an OPS higher than uh, Paul Molitor's in that 1993 World Series and he had like way more playoff series so I'm probably going to, I'll probably edit this part out until I actually count how many series playoff series he was in. Or yeah, it actually says it. Yeah, Derek Jeter, okay. Here, here we are. Derek Jeter was in 33 playoff series. Paul Molitor was in uh, five. Yeah, so Derek Jeter had almost seven times the amount of playoff series that Paul Molitor did. And Derek Jeter did not eclipse the 1993 World Series OPS that Paul Molitor had despite having uh, 6.6 times the amount of playoff series and you also have to consider Jeter played in three game some some three game series and he was unable to do better than Molitor in any of those series so don't come at with with the playoff stats Jeter's uh playoff OPS was 838
1: Molitor's was 1050 also another thing I'd like to mention Paul Mol- so you can say whatever you want about win probability added but it's usually really good at telling you who does a good job of what in the playoffs uh Paul Molitor's uh, win probability added, according to Baseball Reference, for the 1993 World Series, 0.84. Derek Jeter's best in a single playoff series was 0.37 in the 97 ALDS that they lost, and he had a 1,083 OPS. So he couldn't even get halfway to where Molitor was in the 1993 World Series, according to win probability added.
0: Yeah, but Mr. November.
1: Oh, and by the way, his career win probability added in the playoffs, 0.02. He was barely... Positive. Paul Molitor's is one fifty.
0: Yeah, which even like when probability added, I, I'm not. I don't know how how I much. I
1: think it's better on. I think it's better on small samples. It's better on
0: small samples, but it does show that, like, it win probability is really emphasized for like really clutch hits. Like, if you have mm-hmm. those really clutch hits, you're gonna have. Well, that's a all high, they talk
1: about with Jeter. So
0: you have a high win probability added. I mean, Jeter. Like, how many clutch hits can you? can you name you can name that one that the that one fan stole in 1996 against the Orioles you could name that one you could have Mr. November like I mentioned uh and uh I I don't know (laughs) not not much else you could add in his last at bat at Yankee Stadium which was a 86 mile an hour pitch right down the middle that was probably grooved for him because it was the first pitch you know personal bias I guess but Everything you know, I didn't want it to become a, a Derek Jeter bashing thing. I think it should be more about how great Paul. Praising Molitor Paul was. Molitor.
1: Listen, listen. The, the listeners will take this one of two ways: bashing Derek Jeter or praising Paul Molitor. We're trying to praise Paul Molitor here.
0: Yeah, We're Paul seeing... Molitor was was yeah. Paul Molitor, I believe, was better than Derek Jeter, and I think it definitely puts. Derek
1: I'm not gonna go that far. I'm gonna say that he should be looked at on the same platform as Derek Jeter.
0: Yeah. Definitely that, definitely that because uh, Derek Jeter, I mean, you know, it, it puts, it puts Derek Jeter in perspective and it also puts Paul Molitor in perspective. Right. And yeah, Paul Molitor, uh, definitely a guy that should probably be recognized more. And, you know, we've talked, we, we definitely think Derek Jeter should probably be talked about less, but it's, it's not about that. It's about Paul Molitor. Uh, so yeah, Paul, and you know, Paul Molitor Like you're like you're going to talk about he he didn't stop with baseball uh, once he retired after 1990.
1: So in his post playing career, obviously he retires after the 1996 season. Uh, Later on, he joins the Twins as a bench coach in 2000 and 2001. Uh, He applied. He tried to get a managerial job with them, but he lost the job to Ron Gardenhire for the 2002 season. Uh, Later, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, like Chris mentioned in 2004 with an 85.2 voting percentage first ballot, spent nine years as the Twins with a mi- as a minor league base running and infield coordinator, which kind of sounds like a fake title, but hey, it yeah. exists. Uh, and he worked under garden higher in the majors in t- 2014 and 15. And finally, his time came. He was hired as the Twins manager in November 2014. And early on, he had a really good impact. In 2015, the, G- the team jumped from 70 to 83 wins. Uh, didn't make the playoffs quite yet, but they looked very promising. Uh, Unfortunately, in 2016, it took a lesser toll. The team lost 103 games. They actually had the worst record in the league, but they got Royce Lewis out of that number one draft pick, which seems to be working out as of now. 2017, that was the big year. Uh, The team made the playoffs, got knocked out in the wild card game, unfortunately, but Mahler did win manager of the year, uh, which is very exciting. And 2018, uh, unfortunately, the team went seventy-eight and eighty-four, and the team decided to move on. They fired Paul Molitor, and as of now, he doesn't really seem to be doing anything too specific in baseball—at uh, least not getting paid to do so that we know of. I'm sure he's still on a payroll somewhere, but yeah, he doesn't have a specific job.
0: Yeah, he probably he probably basically took twenty nineteen off. I, I bet you know managing a baseball team for four years is is going to take a toll on you, so. You know, you know, he's probably, uh, with, with the family, uh, as of, as of now and, and just kind of, uh, hanging out. He's, he's probably, you know, I bet I could see him being a a manager again, uh, later on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that is Paul Molitor, uh, with a dash of, um, with a dash of Derek Jeter bashing, but mostly about Paul Molitor, um. Yeah. The guy, you know, when you think of guys in the 3000 hit club, Paul Molitor is not like, not the first guy that comes to mind, probably not even in the first 10 guys that comes to mind, although it was top 10, uh, in the hits leaderboard. So, so yeah, that's Paul Molitor, Pauly playoffs. I was happy to learn about his playoff performance and, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's our Paul Molitor portion of the episode. Uh, after we break off, it's not going to be anything for you guys. Uh, we're going to get into the two thousand and five yes. Chicago White Sox breaking sure. the eighty-eight year curse, uh, the curse of maybe the Black Sox. I'm not sure. I think I, I guess you could say that. On. Yeah, but we're going to get into that uh, right at right in the snap of a finger. And welcome. Back to the show to be named later, where we are going to be talking about the 2005 Chicago White Sox. That's right. Uh, a 99 and 63 team. Spoilers. Very, very good team. We'll get it. We'll get into why. Daniel, start off. Talk about what what was the context of this uh, Ch- Chicago White Sox situation.
1: So before I, I'll before I get into this, I know I say this every week, but this team was a pleasure to dive into. Um so much fun. Like there's just there's so many things about this team that you just don't see in other teams of their caliber.
0: Yeah, we have yet to cover a team that like has like won a lot of World Series. So this mm-hmm. is definitely a these are definitely like unique teams.
1: This is this is a forgotten classic team for sure. Yes. And I'll get into many reasons why. But uh, to start off, the White Sox went 83-79 and in 2004. They didn't make the playoffs. And, in fact, they had not won a playoff game since 1993 uh, going into this year. And they were projected to finish fourth in the division uh, going into the year. And they were also, barring an 88-year curse, they had to win a World Series or even a Playoff Series since 1917. Like, they had... You know, when you talk about the Red Sox curse, you talk about the, the many years they would lost the World Series. When you talk about the Cubs curse, you talk about Steve Bartman. you talk about the Black Cat. This team had no, like, this team didn't have any, like, heartbreaking moments. They kind of just were irrelevant for 88 years.
0: Yeah, they just came in raw.
1: Yeah. And over the offseason, they made a lot of small moves that seemed to be really interesting. First of all, they signed Jermaine Dye as a free agent from Oakland. Of course, uh, many people know, know him for being on the Moneyball squad. Uh, they signed A.J. Pruszynski as a free agent to be their catcher. They traded Carlos Lee, a much bigger name person, for Scott Podsednik and Luis Vizcaino. They also claimed some guy named Bobby Jenks off of waivers from the Angels. And they signed a guy named Tadahito Aguchi out of Japan. And, you know, this team was very interesting. Uh, not, not supposed to be very good, but certainly a new cast of characters on the south side of Chicago. And they started out red hot. They won from April 4th to April 25th. They won 16 of their first 20 games. That's right. They were 16 and four, Chris. They had an 800 winning percentage. And the next best team in the whole league was a 706 winning percentage. They were 94 points higher than the next team.
0: Big time. That's big they had, time.
1: They had a five game lead in the AL central over the twins. And... The big bright spot for this team through this period of time was their pitching, their starting pitching particularly. John Garland was 4-0 and with a 180 ERA, despite only having 11 Ks in 30 innings pitched. He had 3.3 Ks per nine. Just an absolute Babbitt machine. And by the way, that uh, that low strikeout rate, but still very good pitching, that's going to be a theme throughout this show. Mark yep. Burley, a 3-1 and one record with a 261 ERA. 23 strikeouts and 31 innings pitched. El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, 2-1 with a 235 ERA, uh, 14 strikeouts and 23 innings pitched. Freddie Garcia, 2-1, a 321 ERA, 15 Ks and 28 innings pitched. Last but not least, Jose Contreras. Uh, This is probably the worst pitcher they had at this time, starting pitcher. 0-0 with a 348 ERA, the worst ERA in the rotation. Get them out of here. 348, I mean, what are you doing? 15 strikeouts and 20 and two-thirds innings. They had a 2.65 starting pitcher ERA, which led the NL, or the AL, excuse me. It wasn't really even close. Uh, Yet they had a 529 case per nine, which ranked ninth in the AL. And also the offense was kind of lacking. Uh, They were 11th in the AL in weighted runs created plus with 79. In fact, they were tied for... Uh, 11th the Indians also at 79 so they could have been 12th on that list as well um they had the 10th best OPS in the AL with a 696 and the 9th best average with a 258 so no matter which side you're looking at for the offense could be better
0: yeah for sure and like that just shows how good
1: mm-hmm. that
0: uh that pitching staff was you can have 79 weighted runs created plus and still go sixteen and four. That's right. It's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the pitching definitely led the way that season. Um, I think, yeah, the 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 offense ended up being below average the entire season. They were they picked it up a little bit. They were, but they were still below average. Um, so yeah, they they start out red hot. They kind of keep it going. You know, not exactly at that pace. It's pretty much impossible. Uh, but mm-hmm. they end up. Uh, they end up going 57-29 and 29, uh, heading into the All-Star break. That was the best record in the, uh, in the MLB. They were yeah. nine games up in the AL Central, and they were six games up on the next best team in the entire American League. Incredible, incredible stuff from the Chicago White Sox starting out red hot. Uh, they had four All-Stars. Uh, they had Mark Burley, Paul Kanerko, Scott Podsednik, and John Garland all going uh, to the 2005 All-Star Game. And Mark Burley, in particular,ly was having a great first half, resulted in him getting the uh, All-Star Game start and uh, ended up getting getting the victory as well.
1: You got uh, the in win his, in the
0: short all-star, st- uh, All-Star start. Um, the team also, uh, in that first half, before July 1st even, the literal first half, uh, the team had three separate eight game winning streaks, which is insane. You don't see that, never from many teams. Uh, three separate eight game winning streaks, so they it wasn't just one, one big long streak, they were able to get on streaks consistently, uh, over those first three months, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, they also, you know, probably. Probably the biggest uh, biggest surprise that, uh, that I found that actually Daniel was able to find uh, this week.
1: This is, uh, this is credit to NBC Sports Chicago. They had this.
0: Yeah. They set a record, an MLB record that also still stands by having a lead in each of their first 37 games. They had a lead in each of their first 37 I, games, basically a I month and remember. a half. They have a lead every of, game.
1: Like, hey, we're doing something well right now. In at least once in every game. Like, there was no snoot. There was no just like, there was no tough one. Yeah. Like, from first to last pitch over the first thirty-seven games of the season for the White Sox.
0: Yeah, they they didn't just get straight up slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Uh, one game they were always they were,
1: it, they were in it every game.
0: Yeah, always always in it, and even when it went when it went kind of worse for them. They were still pretty good. I mean, they had a they, they slowed down in the second half, which is understandable when you have a crazy division lead. You know, you're probably resting some guys.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: they went, you know, guys are also getting tired a little bit. Um, they go 42 and 34 in the second half. Um, and they were especially bad in the month of August. They yeah. went 12 and 16 in that month.
1: They also and, had a seven-game uh, losing streak that month.
0: Yeah, had a seven-game losing streak um, to combat those three uh, eight-game winning streaks that they had earlier in the season. And, uh, you know, them slowing down and also uh, the Indians kind of <laughs> heated up uh, as the season uh, got later, they're, uh, from, from August 1st to September 22nd, uh, they're – their uh, lead in the division went from 15 games ahead to 1.5 games ahead, which yeah. is pretty pretty scary.
1: Actually, they got it about as close as you could possibly get it. They coasted as much as they could.
0: Yeah, ra- like razor thin. But mm-hmm. uh, but they were they were able to win that division. Uh, still, you know, relatively handily. I think they I think they had the division lead for the entire season. Wire so, to wire. Yeah, they never. Uh, they never lost that division lead, even though it was uh, at 1.5 games uh, on September 22nd. So, uh, even more incredibly, this team was able to get it together on the road. Particularly, they were 52 and 29 on the road as a whole. We're kind of getting into the into the whole season. said my mic. I was going to say, what just happened to your mic? <laughs> yeah i uh, i hit it doing hand motions talking with my hands finally classic classic cruck. so they go 52 and 29 on the road uh and they finished the regular season with a 99 and 63 record that's the best record in the american league was it the best record in the mlb
1: at the time no uh the cardinals went 162 oh damn yeah
0: well they uh they they were a game off from the best team, best uh, record in the MLB. Uh, they had the best record in the American League, which is kind of what matters, especially when um, there was no the the All Star game determined home field advantage.
1: And who was uh, the guy and, that got the All Star game win?
0: Yeah, who was the guy? Mark Burley. Anthony Mark Burley. So it didn't really matter if they were the, if they had the best record in the MLB because of that admittedly stupid rule. But the White Sox uh white Sox were able to get that home field advantage so they have home field advantage throughout the uh AL playoffs and also the world series if they get there um and what was what was unique about the chicago uh white Sox, the 2005 chicago white Sox is they won a lot of close games
1: mm-hmm. they
0: only had a 96 a plus 96 run differential which was sixth best in the AL, which is pretty surprising. Usually, usually if you have the best record in the American League, you're first or second in run differential. They
1: were sixth. They were not even top five. Yeah. There were teams that didn't make the playoffs that had better run differentials than them. Yeah. The Indians were like a 148 or something like that, maybe 118. I don't know. But the Indians were significantly better by that measure.
0: Yeah, and you also have to consider they were a combined 7-10 and 10, uh, against the Red Sox and the angels who Which are the would two be the other division
1: winners in the AL.
0: Yeah. Who would be their, uh, their opponents in the, um, in the, in the thing, in the, in the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, uh, who would be their, uh, opponents in the playoffs. So I could see how the media might have some doubt, uh, with this team because, you know, they're not winning by a lot, you know, partially because of good bullpen, Um, good bullpen play. They were able to uh, get things going and and win those games. But, you know, I could see how there would be some doubt. But, you know, another, you know, we can't get off of a regular, a crazy regular season highlight because August 21st, there was a, you know, even though it was a, it was a 12 and 16 August for them, you Mm -hmm. know, they still, they still had a a flair for the, for the highlights.
1: They, the white uh, Sox did something that I can't imagine any other team ever did.
0: Yeah. Sorry. The uh Yeah, go go on.
1: Um the I'm going to I'm not going to say exactly what happens, but the White Sox did a thing that I I don't know exact the exact number, but I can't imagine this ever happened in the history of baseball in this particular man's career outside of this one moment in 2005.
0: Yeah. So here we are. It's August 21st, 2005. Um, if the Yankees are in town. Before. Right.
1: And the Yankees yeah. are in town.
0: The Yankees are in town. Mm-hmm. They, the Yankees—they're excited because they got this, this, this ace. They've got a, uh, yeah, they've got an ace—a guy, a future Hall of Famer, the big unit, the unit, Randy Johnson. See what the White Sox did to them on—did to him on August twenty-first. Here it is. I feel
2: Stretch, get on back there. He looks up. You can put it on the board. Yes. Aguchi.
0: Great name, by the way.
2: And this yes. team is and <laughs> Monday home run replay, and he's done this before. Going to right field, playing the conditions. The ball carries well that direction, and it's in the bullpen of the Yankees.
0: Going back to back off of the big unit, you don't see that a lot. You see Tadahito Iguchi and Aaron Rowand each getting a home run. I mean, I don't think I don't think the unit is doing anything. Uh, is going to be able to to handle this he's going to lock it down. Probably get a strikeout this next step at bat
2: So, of course, um, Randy Johnson...
1: Granted, he wasn't exactly uh, in his prime that season, uh, 2005 for the Yankees, what? not exactly his best year. Uh, in fact, if you pull it up right here, you see that he had a 379 ERA, not t- terrible, but certainly not the Randy Johnson that we're all used to. It was past his four straight sign words. Uh, the main reason I put this in is because I needed a regular season highlight, and I couldn't, I couldn't turn down a fa- an idea to get a uh, Hawk Harrelson call in there.
0: Oh yeah. You need, you need
1: that. at least once.
0: Yeah. You need uh, Hawk Harrelson.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And luckily, uh, luckily we get some, some Chris Berman on our, our, on our highlight reel. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was probably the, the regular season highlight, something you don't see very often, a uh, three, three home runs in a row by That's the unit by the White Sox against future hall of famer, Randy Johnson.
1: Right. So
0: the White Sox, they end up being first in the American League in uh, relieve, uh, in reliever wins above replacement and second in the American League in reliever earned run average.
1: That being helped by guys like Bobby Jenks, by guys like Neil Cotts, those are the main two guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And their starters uh, did even better. They were first in the American League in starter wins above replacement and also first in the American League uh, in starter in starter ERA, mm-hmm. and uh, they were they were a really unique squad, uh, this entire pitching staff. They ranked 10th in the American League in ground ball percentage and first in left on base percentage, uh, and their left on base percentage was seventy five point four percent. And uh, not a lot you see usually you know soft soft contact ground balls. That'll help you in the left on base department um not the not the case here uh i guess I guess they got a lot of pop outs or weak fly balls, and uh, yeah they were able I'm to leave pitching. guys on they were able to leave guys on at a spectacular rate uh, and the next team to do that was the 2011 race so that's six years um, that it took to for that to happen again
1: percent left on base
0: yeah, you mentioned. Bobby Jenks as being uh, a main guy, but Dustin Hermanson uh, probably goes under the radar because he was the closer for basically the entire season. Uh, he was 34 for 39 and save opportunities, had a 204 ERA. And then in late September, he suffers a back injury. And that makes rookie Bobby Jenks, <laughs> Uh, have all the pressure on him, yeah. and he's the new closer for the playoffs. Which right. he wasn't a closer to begin with, and now you're just the closer for the playoffs. So uh, we'll we'll see how that works for uh, for Bobby Jenks and Ozzie Guillen. But you know, from from a uh, from a lens back then, you're thinking this might not end well for the White Sox. But uh, yeah, the the team, you know, they. They were 99-63, and 63 and uh, definitely carried by Ozzy Guillen, who you're going to talk about. Ozzy Guillen was yes. revolutionary for the White Sox.
1: So before we get into what happened with the White Sox in the playoffs, I would be remiss to talk about the charismatic man that Ozzy Guillen was. His second year as the White Sox manager, um, there's two moments I would like to talk about specifically. Actually, there's three. One of them will come in later, but there's two that I'm going to mention right now. Uh, One of them occurred uh, 10 years after this team. Um, In 2015, Ozzie Guillen came into the White Sox broadcast booth to do an interview during a game like they do. And the reporter asked the the cliche, when did you know that this team was special? Um, Question. And, you know, normally when this question is asked, the manager will give the cliche like, oh, you know, I saw them in spring training and they looked really good and they were bonding well together and I knew that. That's when we were going to be special. And Ozzie Guillen instead gives an answer that says, well, you know, when I was making the lineup card, assuming that means spring training, early regular season, uh, you know, I knew that this was a good group of guys that I wanted to manage, but I didn't think they were going to win the World Series. He didn't think they were going to win the World Series back then. They shocked the world. They shocked everybody. Uh, that That's a great... Ozzy Guillen moment, in my opinion. Just that nobody says that. Like everyone gives the cliche, I saw it in spring training and I knew that it was special. And that's obviously something that you can easily say in hindsight, which is what this was. But Ozzy Guillen didn't say that. He was, he told it like it was. He's honest. And I love that about him. Another quote that I had, this is completely random, doesn't really have much to do with uh, the 2005 team. But uh, this is him speaking on. So Bleacher Report has an article about him where they, coined him the R-rated yogi. Yep. And uh, he was talking about death one day, and Ozzy Guillen said, quote, I hope I die on the field. I hope when I walk to change the pitcher, I drop dead and that's it. I know my family would be so happy that it happened on the field. They wouldn't feel bad because they that's what I've always wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that's the ultimate baseball
1: guy. Who says that? Ozzy Guillen, that's who.
0: For sure, for well, sure. Well, I
1: love this guy. I think I don't know if he's open to another managerial job, but I would not complain if he gets another one.
0: Oh yeah. He's you know, get him on a on a talented <laughs> roster. I think that would be absolutely hilarious. Yeah. I mean the the the, the Marlins experiment uh, the Marlins experiment didn't work out, but it's probably because of the, the players on the field there. We'll see. We'll see. I would not
1: be opposed to him getting another job, if possible. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's it's just it's just good for baseball.
1: Mm-hmm. It's just
0: good for baseball there. So, so yeah, the uh, the White Sox, the Ozzy Guillen led 2005 Chicago White Sox, they are going to face the uh, 2005 Wild Card team, the defending World Series champion Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go into Game One pretty loose. Uh, I mean, they were pretty confident. The the documentary that. I watched, said they were pretty loose because it was kind of a new bunch. They didn't really, uh, you know, you could kind of go one of two ways. You could have a lot of pressure on you, or you could really just not care, <laughs> really, at all. And uh, I guess the whatever methods the White Sox chose seemed to, because in game one, it was pedal to the metal. They won 14 to two. Uh, <laughs> Matt Clement, one of the worst Red Sox free agent signings in, in one recent of the many. history. Um, definitely, definitely laid an egg on the mound for the Red Sox. And, uh, the, the White Sox were able to hit, uh, five home runs. (laughs) Yeah. They were able to hit five home runs, two from AJ Pruszynski, uh, one from Canerco, one from Uribe, uh, and one from Scott Pudsednik, who had not hit a home run all year during the regular season. Not a
1: single one, zero home runs. And he actually, what's funny is the year before he hit, I believe, 12 home runs and he had a better OPS in 2005. Yeah, that's wild. Flat 700, 59 stolen bases.
0: Yeah, pretty And he made
1: made the all-star team.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Zero home runs in the regular season for Scott Podsednik. And he he makes it uh, in game one of the playoffs.
0: Yeah. And he, you know, those, it wasn't just an offensive performance from those guys. They won fourteen to two. So obviously, the man on the mound for Chicago uh, had to bring it, and that was Jose Contreras. Yeah, uh, he went seven and two thirds. Uh, get ready for a lot of long appearances for these starters. Uh, Contreras he went seven and two thirds, uh, allowed eight hits, two runs, and uh, was able to get six strikeouts, which was probably a lot for Jose Contreras in, in seven and two thirds innings. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's. That game it wasn't really in question for a long time, but game two uh that's when it started to get dicey for the White Sox. They were actually down four to nothing in the third inning and uh in the fifth inning, uh, they were able to get some base runners on uh, and basically this this entire uh video kind of describes what happens yeah. Um, an ad every first, an ad. But first, a 15-second ad that you're not going to see because, you know, is it, is no, one, no
1: free one, ads for us. Is it one of those unskippable ads?
0: Unskippable, yeah, dude. That's
1: tough.
0: Apple, I mean, I, I know I said no free ads, but Apple really screws with you on the 15-second ad. Who
1: doesn't ad. know what Apple is?
0: Uh, it's a fruit. Exactly. <laughs> it's a It's a fruit.
1: I eat like
0: one almost every day. All right, so here we are. This is the newly acquired David Wells on the mound. Uh, yeah. This is what the White Sox were able to do in the fifth inning. Down four to nothing against the defending World Series champion, Boston Red Sox. Line
2: drive down the left field line, dropping quick to the corner. This ball bounces fair. Down the line it goes, rolls around the corner. Everett's going to come home. In the second base is Rowan with a run-scoring double. Sox are on the board.
0: So now it's 4-1. to, one. Four to one here
2: in the That ball was spared by about two inches. White Sox trying to add a run. They trail 4-1 to one at the 2-2 to Creedy. Swing, bouncing ball over the mound, up the middle. Through for a base hit. Rowan walks in. Creedy's got an RBI single, and Sox have cut the lead to 4-2. to two. That's a C-9 single talk about making adjustments though. Joe was popping up the ball yesterday, Ed. There he was just trying to take the ball back to the middle. Made solid contact. Graffadino and Riff. Maria had no chance to catch. One ball, one strike on Aguchi. A look at first. The 1-1. Curve ball hit deep to left. This has got a chance to the bullpen. Three-run homer. He picked up with Sednik. Docs lead 5-4.
0: A crazy, a crazy turnaround right right there. Um, Yeah, there was an error by Tony Graffanino, who, I mean, can you get more Italian than that? Tony Graffanino, please, man. Uh, But, yeah, Tony Graffanino has an error with two outs. So all three of the runs allowed by David Wells there on Tadahito Iguchi's home run. All three are unearned, but that does not matter on the scoreboard because they're up five to four and uh, they're able to keep the score the same and they win that game. It's they're up two games to nothing.
1: Uh, Going into looking to,
0: looking to clinch in game three at Fenway. Uh, but it wasn't, but it was not easy. It was not easy in game three. Uh, the, the White Sox, you know, it was close. They, they, the White Sox they were up four to three, but unfortunately, unfortunately for the White Sox, uh, they the Red Sox load up the bases uh, in the late innings. They load up the bases in the late innings. Uh, this ad I can skip. Here we go.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So, El Duque coming out of the bullpen.
0: What inning was it? I gotta next. It's the sixth inning. The White Sox are up four to three, but it's bases loaded with nobody out.
1: Nobody is out.
0: And you're gonna see who came up to the plate. No slouches for sure. I mean I think the Red Sox led in team OPS that year. Yeah, they did. <laughs> years with the New York Yankees and a couple of stints there. This guy has postseason experience for
2: sure. May, you acknowledge
1: the 1917 sign in the background. here after 1918 stopped being a thing.
2: Fanerico calls Presci off, makes the Big out there. Hapsim as well. Aribe calls for it at short. They are oh, high five in at home plate right there. I think Prozinski
0: talked him in. Here comes another 3-2 count to Damon.
2: Oh, he gets them to go. And the White Sox L Duque goes charging off as well. He should. He comes in with the beats is loaded and gets Feratec, Grafanino, and Damon. Yeah.
0: So that's that's the that's the gist of uh, yeah. of that that basically shut down the Red Sox for the rest of the game, which was ultimately the rest of the series. Uh, Red Sox don't score another run after that, and uh, yeah, I I said that the that the guys were no slouches. Uh, I forgot that Tony Graffinino was one of the.
1: I wasn't gonna say that beforehand. Yeah, but, uh, I knew you were gonna say it afterwards. But hey, Veritek and Damon.
0: Veritek and Damon. Two
1: key parts of that lineup.
0: In their prime. Yes. Uh, Yeah, Veritek pops out 2-0, which is inexcusable. And then uh, Damon swings just enough uh, on a 3-2 count. And uh, no one scores. And the White Sox got an insurance run late. They ended up winning. By the way,
1: one thing I do want to touch on, I couldn't find this highlight anywhere, but the way the White Sox got insurance in the ninth was on a bunt by Juan Uribe. Huh. On a, like think about that with a runner on third he bunted to get the uh, the insurance run in it's not something you see that often and that kind of speaks to the, to the type of baseball that this team played like they mixed in the small ball with the homers I believe they had hunt over 200 homers as a team that year as well
0: yeah they were uh, that for sure an interesting team interesting is definitely They're a the mixture way, of both definitely the way that you would put it and the White Sox they get that insurance run as uh, Daniel said. Uh, they do not allow any more runs. They win 5-3, to three, and they are going to the American League Championship Series, which that was their first playoff series win since 1917.
1: 88 years.
0: 88 so, years since their last playoff series win, and they, they finally get it.
1: So the ALCS opponent for the White Sox would be the Anaheim Angels, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, whatever you want to call them. And this is the ALCS matchup you're supposed to get. These are the best two teams going at it overall, both record-wise, I believe. And all yeah, both record-wise and just by overall how good they were talent-wise. Uh, the Angels played a five-game ALDS against the Yankees and they obviously beat them. They played in New York on October 9th. Game four was delayed by a day because of the rain. So they played in New York on the 9th. They lost. They played in LA on the 10th. They won. And on the 11th, they went to Chicago. So that's three different games in three completely different cities, basically on other sides of the country in three days. And still, they come out and win game one on the road behind Paul Bird, Scott Shields, and K-Rod. Also, Garrett Anderson homered. And that was the Angels winning game one. In game two, however, uh, things were different. It was a 1-1 game going into the ninth inning. And this was pretty much one of the most remembered moments uh, of This was the most remembered moment of this series, and it was A.J. Perzinski reaching on a controversial strikeout, a drop-third strike call, uh, which allowed the White Sox to rally around that. And, Chris, you're going to pull up the video.
2: Yep, here we are. Escobar, another strikeout. Perzinski is going down to first. The home umpire has not made a call. It's safe are already off the field. Well, if Josh Paul made the catch, which he did, then it's a strikeout. Brzezinski's thinking, hey, why not? The home plate umpire couldn't make the call. This might be the best thing for instant replay in baseball that's happened and occurred this postseason because clearly... He caught the ball, and the catcher knows whether it's a short hop or you catch it cleanly, whether there's leather between the dirt. He's going. They don't pitch out. Strike two, but down to second
0: is... So now you got a man on scoring position uh, for oh, Joe Creedy running. when there is, the inning should have been over.
1: A to so, obviously a lot of controversy sparked there. I, I looked at it a lot of times. I do think it hits the ground, uh, just barely. But, I mean, the term Game of Inches, is no, there's no better place for it than right there.
0: Also, I loved how McCarver said, you know, this is a case for uh, Major League Baseball to install replay, and you know, luckily MLB, the MLB was able to implement it soon. Nine it was, years nine later. Nine years, yeah. Nine, nine years, years later. They were right on top of it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They, yeah. I mean, that was a different commissioner too. Like Sealy didn't. Sealy was in office at that time, and he didn't even do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, but hey, a heads-up play there from AJ Brzezinski. Absolutely. Mean, I, guess, I mean, I guess as a catcher, it makes sense that he's the guy that's thinking about that. Uh, obviously, he doesn't get tagged, so it's it's he runs down to first, and it just so happens that the ball did just hit the ground, or maybe it didn't, but I don't know. And Joe Creedy, of course, the walk-off double. Also, uh, Mark Burley got the win in that game in a complete game. Game three, uh, the Sox go out to Anaheim, and they win the game 5-2. to two. John Garland with a complete game, four hits, two runs, one walk, and seven strikeouts. Canerco. <laughs> Had three hits, one of them being a homer, and he also had three RBIs.
0: You have to think here that maybe Guillen was hesitant to trust Bobby Jenks. Maybe because you know usually in the late innings are the closer, but uh, yeah, I I don't know.
1: We'll see. In Game Four, the Sox win eight to two. Freddie Garcia's turn. Nine innings pitched. That's right, another complete game. Six hits, two runs, one walk, and five strikeouts. Canerco hit another home run, and he also had another three RBIs. He had a three-run home run in the first inning, in fact. And in Game 5, the White Sox win 6-3. to They clinch the series. Uh, And it was Jose Contreras, nine innings pitched, five hits, three earned runs, two walks, and two strikeouts over a complete game. Folks, that is four straight complete games by White Sox starting pitchers in a single playoff series. That will never be done again. We will never see that again.
0: And you know, it's not even a something that was a trend uh, beforehand. Mm-hmm. That was the first time that was done since nineteen twenty-eight.
1: That's right. That was that's, that's almost a hundred years. That's seventy-seven three quarters, three quarters. years. Three quarters of a century. Folks, I, I just said it, but I'll say it for the rest of the show. That will never happen again. You will never see four pitchers from the same team throw complete games four times in a row in a playoff in a single playoff series.
0: Yeah, I don't know how many times we'll see four pitch, five innings four, in a row. Four starting pitchers, yeah. I was going to yeah. say 7, but even 5 is aggressive.
1: So, despite despite the fantastic pitching, Paul Canerico actually wins MVP and nothing to complain about. 286, 318, 619, 937 uh, with two home runs and seven RBI, could have easily made a case for Joe Creedy who had that walk-off he also went three sixty eight average, 11.39 OPS, two home runs, seven RBIs, just like Canerco. Um, but nonetheless, Canerco gets it. I'm sure I'm sure Joe Creedy's fine with it. And the White Sox go on to the World Series. They're facing the Houston Astros, an 89-win team who came out of the wild card. Uh, interesting matchup, great pitching. They got Roy Oswalt. They got uh, uh, Andy Pettit. They got – The Rocket. Rocket. Clemens, they got Brendan Backey, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Clemens and had a, Clemens had a one. crazy
0: year that year, too.
1: Yes, he did. In game one, it was a back-and-forth game. Uh, the White Sox win 5-3 to three on homers from Jermaine Dye and Joe Creedy. Uh, not, nothing, no particular highlights, but one thing I did want to address, Bobby Jenks got the save in this game, and this is the other Ozzie Guillen story that I was going to hold off on. When Ozzie Guillen went to the bullpen, he put Bobby Jenks in mid-inning, and he, he walks out and motions for a big wide guy with his arms. He does, like, the, the wide arms instead of the, uh, the hand to call for uh, the lefty or the righty, and he eventually did do the, do the arms thing, but the first thing he did was he called for a big wide guy in Jenks, and Jenks said he had no problem with it. He thought it was funny, but uh, yeah, what, what manager in this game is doing that? Nobody. No one, yeah. But not a single. You're not going to see uh, Ron Gardenhire from the Tigers going out and doing this when calling for a reliever. Yeah. You're not going to see Rick Renteria, the current White Sox manager, doing it either. But yeah. uh, that was game one. Game two, a classic. One of the best games in the 21st century. Um, it was back and forth early, and then Paul Crenerco comes up down two to four and gives the White Sox the best hit. The biggest hit in the history of their franchise. Chris, roll the video. Off of Chad Qualls.
0: thing i will add uh to that grand slam is there might have been some luck involved there because there was also a, a hit batsman Jer- jermaine die was hit
1: That's earlier
0: right. and there were there were things saying that it could have been the bat it was kind of hard to see because his, his sleeve was black
1: Maybe he could have hit the bat there another yeah. time where they could have had instant replay.
0: yeah his sleeve was black and the bat was also black um mm-hmm. so maybe another thing going Chicago's way, but they didn't really need any luck. They were crazy good. They were fine. Yeah.
1: Uh, and then Bobby Jenks actually blows the save in the ninth inning. By the way, that put the White Sox up six to four. Jenks ended up blowing the save in the ninth inning. And then the amount of a few powers, powerful swings, but timely ones, nonetheless, Scott Podsegnik comes up and sends him home happy. When Chris uh, pulls up this video here.
0: Sorry, every, everything's got to be perfect. Full screen, unmuted. Here we are.
1: You're not sharing the screen,
2: Chris. <laughs>
0: Just a classic, classic game.
1: That's right. Scott Podsednik, with zero home runs in the regular season walks it off for his second home run in the postseason, of course. And, like,
0: also you have to consider that's, like, 40-degree weather.
1: Yeah. Ball's not carrying. Maybe it's the wind of the Windy City, Chicago. I don't know. Even Uh, still. game, Game three was the longest home run in World Series history by innings and by time. Uh, this this no longer stands due to Ian Kinsler. That's okay. But uh, Jeff Blum hit a home run in the 14th to put the Sox on top. And the White Sox bullpen allowed no runs and one hit over seven innings of work. Also, Mark Burley got the save in this game, the first save of his career. And Chris yep. is going to pull up the Jeff Blum home run. By the way, this was Blum's only plate appearance in the World Series. He finished... Yeah. He finished with a 5,000 quadruple slash line. That's perfect. It can't get any better than that.
0: Yeah, and in the um, in the World Series DVD, uh, they actually had he was mic'd for batting practice. Yeah. He was like, "Oh, I might be able to get in. You know, there, there's no DH here, so I might be able to mm-hmm. get in. You know, try to try to hit something good."
1: This is the and, last guy off the bench.
0: Yeah. Over he did and also you have to consider he's been sitting there for four and a half hours maybe yeah just waiting <laughs> and uh, comes off the bench and uh, our prep sheet again I have to move this okay here we are and uh, yeah he comes off the bench it's the 14th inning tie game been a tie game for a while so here's Jeff Blum uh, on a 2o count we'll
2: in Goes deep, and here in the 14th inning, the White Sox take a 6-5 lead. Jeff Blum gets his first at bat of this series, and only his second of the postseason.
1: And that's making the best of your opportunities, right there, Chris. Absolutely. So the White Sox go on to win. They're one game away from the World Series, the victory, and in Game Four. We get, a, we get a good old-fashioned pitcher's duel. Freddie Garcia and Brandon Backey both pitch seven shutout innings. And something has to give, and it did in the eighth inning. Jermaine Dye hits a two-out RBI single up the middle off of Brad Lidge in the eighth. And the score holds from there. And in the ninth inning, we get two great plays uh, by Juan Uribe. And Chris, why don't you pull, play both of those clips to end the storybook season for this team?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... It's just so fitting that a guy like Uribe, just kind of a a random guy, there there were there wasn't a lot of star power on this team, so it's fitting that mm-hmm. you know kind of just the the yeah. everyday consistent shortstop just uh, is able to to get that get these plays.
1: That's right. <laughs>
2: Is made by Uribe, an unbelievable crowd. Ending up in the crowd as he pulls in out number two in the night. What a remarkable play with his back facing first base, catching it, and then tumbling into the crowd here at Minute Maid Park. My goodness. What a play. So now two out. The White Sox one
1: out away. So that would be the second out of the inning.
0: Yeah, so that's out number two. Uh still a tight game. You still got a man on uh still got a man on first. Guys to worry about. And second. Um yeah. Uh yeah, guys to worry about. And your he makes a great play there.
1: it looks like we're getting in an edge. <laughs>
0: It's hard. It's hard doing this, but uh, yeah, you got you got two down, man on first. It's a one nothing game. Anything can happen here. Uh, a hit would kind of mess things up. So here we are for uh, history. For history. Oh, whoops. I'm gonna restart <laughs>
2: it. Second, two out, Palmero over the head of Jacks. Uribe charges goes. out, and the White Sox won the World Series. Juan Uribe with a play, charging it, throwing it, and the White Sox celebrate their first title in 88 years.
1: So there it is. The White Sox win the World Series. They break an 88 year long drought and one of the most remarkable teams that nobody remembers.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, this was, this is a team that doesn't like unfairly does not get recognized for their dominance. They went 11 and 1 in the postseason, folks.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I don't know if you guys did the math at home. They went 11 and 1 in the postseason. And since they,
1: uh, they won every game on the road, too.
0: Yeah, won every game on the road, and since um, since they brought the three series format um, in nineteen in nineteen ninety five, uh, since they made that playoff format, only one other team has only lost one game in the playoffs. That was the nineteen ninety nine Yankees, who, you know, I imagine he was on paper far better than the White Sox, but the White Sox were right up there in terms of postseason dominance for sure.
1: So Jermaine Dye wins World Series MVP, and there's no doubt in my mind. 438, 526, 688, 1214, slash line. Also got the game-winning RBI in game four. Uh, Joe Creedy throughout the postseason was so clutch. 289, 327, 622, 949 with four home runs, 11 RBI. And this team leaves behind a legacy that, in my opinion, personifies the human element to the game. You know, they didn't have a crazy star-studded lineup. They didn't have pitchers that would blow you away with 97-mile-an-hour gas. They were just incredibly timely. They had a flair for the dramatic, and they always knew how to get it done when you needed to. They made the timely pitches. They got the timely hits. They made the big plays when they needed to. And that's sort of a lost art in today's game. And th- that's not a bad thing by any means for this team. Like this is, They have this human element that nobody else can say that they have, really.
0: Yeah. And like the team, they were an absolute, they were a team. They were mm-hmm. a cohesive unit. When the, yeah. when the pitcher, when the pitchers gave up more runs, the offense was able to match them. When the, when, when the lineup was kind of going uh, cold, the, the pitching staff was able to, to hold it together and yeah. make sure they were able to win the game every single time.
1: And one last thing uh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I guess it's better that we do it now. Uh, in 2014, Paul Canarco retired with the White Sox. He played his entire career there. And they had a ceremony beforehand during the game. And they actually brought out the guy who caught his grand slam in game two. And he returned it to him. And it was a really cool gesture. Uh, we have a video that we're going to play in just a moment. But, I mean, a defi- you know, one of the defining moments in this franchise's history and to bring it all back and have it to have it come full circle in the hands of Paul Canerco, the best player on this team on the offense and the the face of this franchise, was just super fitting, and it was really nice to see.
0: Yeah, how? When did he get it? Yeah, he got his number retired pretty much immediately.
1: Yeah, and he he's eligible for the hall of, he was eligible for the hall of fame ballot this year. Uh, I don't believe he got in, uh, but that's okay. That's not important. What's important was that he led this team. Uh, to championship glory for the first yeah, time. Definitely
0: years. a White Sox legend. He's yeah. not going to have to buy any alcoholic beverage in, in the south side of Chicago, at least mm-hmm. uh, in the near future. Really
2: important ball, ball that you hit for the Grand Slam home run. Well, Brooks, Brooks Boyer, our senior vice president, was determined to find that ball.
1: And Shout out to uh, Hall of Famer Jim Tomey in the back. found
2: it. It was owned yep. by a gentleman named Chris Clays. We sought him out. We asked him if he would bring the ball and give it to you. He did not hesitate, and he's here now to present it to you.
0: So, yeah, definitely a, a super cool moment mo, a super cool moment for both guys. I mean, yeah. I, I, imagine being the fan like you get to you get to uh deliver the most famous home run in his career uh to him
1: Initially and your franchise too.
0: Yeah, and you're the pl- yeah, most important home run of the franchise. And uh you're the player, you get to get a home run that you've hit nine years prior.
1: <laughs> that's what I was going to say is you get to keep the ball for nine years and then have your moment of fame when everyone's nostalgic about it.
0: Yeah. That's big time. That's big time.
1: Yeah. Um, so that'll close the door on the 2005 Chicago White Sox. A great team, a great team. For sure. The, probably, and a of art of team building.
0: I mean, like, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't go, I don't know if I can go through every team, but maybe the most overlooked world series team of the century.
1: You could definitely say that, and we're here to change that.
0: Yeah, and, you know. We
1: are – we have both become big-time advocates of this team throughout this week of research. And, yeah. I mean, the like, this picture behind me alone, this is the four pitchers who threw complete games in one series with their pitching coach, something that you're never going to see again. I'll say it a thousand times. It's never going to happen again.
0: Yeah, and it's about the team. You know, there were – neither of them uh, – none of them won the Cy Young. Uh, they didn't have an MVP winner.
1: I think it was like fifth or sixth.
0: Yeah, it wasn't a star-studded bunch. It was just guys who who played as a team, and you know each starter. There's
1: a lot to respect about that, and you gotta you gotta love Ozzie Gann too.
0: Yeah, each starter did their, did their job, and of course they had a great manager to lead them to lead the way. So that leads us. That closes the door on the 2005 White White Sox. Make sure to remember them. Keep them in your thoughts when you're talking about the great teams, especially when you're talking about great teams of like the 21st century. recent memory but that leads us to probably the most most exciting part of the show at least for us yeah um
1: this is this this moment determines my whole week
0: yeah determines our whole week determines who we're thinking about in the baseball world uh because there's no one else to think about
1: exactly uh, uh i picked first last time so you're gonna go ahead number one through 30
0: number one through 30 uh the team we will be talking about is uh team number 28
1: Team number 28. Ooh. Well, isn't this just hilarious, Chris? We're going to talk about the World Series champion, 1993 Toronto Blue Jays. Let's Holy go. playoffs.
0: Because I, I was looking at this team and I was like, this is a pretty cool team. Yeah. And we are. <laughs> talking about, yeah, as we've talked about, Paul Molitor's great performance. Uh, we get into the nineteen ninety-three That is perfect. Blue Jays. Yeah. Go, let's go. I'm excited. I'm excited about next episode.
1: And I guess it's my turn now. Number one through 30. your turn.
0: Now. Pick a number, one through 30.
1: We're going to go with number 18.
0: Number 18.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We are going a man with a man who finished with exactly 3,000 hits, Roberto, Roberto Clemente.
1: Roberto Clemente. One of the best, the best humanitarian in all of baseball. A man who arguably should have his number retired through the whole league.
0: Yeah. Definitely, if there's a second guy who should, who should have his uh, number retired, it's Roberto Clemente with number twenty-one. Played his entire career with the Pirates, and it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun one. It's gonna be a fun one for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that leads us to the conclusion of our episode. This was a bit of a bit of a long one. I think it was it ran near two hours. I don't know if it, it definitely went was, over two hours. If it was exactly. Two hours because we did take a break in the middle because right now mm-hmm. it's it's ten sixteen and we started at like eight fifteen yeah um so yeah so I hope you all enjoyed this episode where we talked about uh, Paul Molitor and the two thousand five Chicago White Sox very fine. Uh, so if you want to if you're listening just on audio and you want to check out video uh, our YouTube channel is stbnl with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran. I know it's, right. I know it's a lot to type in, but you know, once again, in the search history, it, you can just click it, but uh, yeah, you can subscribe to that. You can watch um, all of our episodes. Also, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can go to at Chris underscore Gionta. If you want to follow Daniel on Twitter, that's at Daniel underscore Curran. Yes. C-U-R-R-E-N. C-U-R-R-E-N. The popular am, way is pan
1: uh, but that's not how it
0: is. Yeah, I am G I O N T A. Um mm-hmm. if you didn't know that. But I mean it's in it's in our show title so I think you should you should be able to get that. Um mm-hmm. I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you will enjoy our next episode uh which will be showing up on YouTube. I know that for sure. I don't know about Apple Podcast cuz they they're, they've had a delayed response but you will see our next episode on Wednesday, next Wednesday when we will be talking about Roberto Clemente and the 1993 Toronto Blue Jays. See you next week.